Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2016. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching, at tgc.org podcasts. I am not in the, the crass sense of the word to be creative. My, my goal is to be receptive to what God has said and then to restate it to my hearers in a way that is helpful and useful and faithful to what God has said. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie, your host for this podcast. And this is a podcast for people who love the Bible, want to understand the Bible, and not just because we want to understand it for ourselves, but because we also want to become better and better at giving out, explaining, applying the scriptures in all kinds of settings. Maybe it's an adult Sunday school class, a children's Sunday school class, a a youth group, a a small group, Um, whatever scenario you find yourself taking God's word and seeking to help someone else understand it, it's my desire that Help Me Teach the Bible would equip you for that. Now, usually on this podcast, we're talking with someone through a particular book of the Bible who is helping us, equipping us to be prepared to teach that book. Today, we're doing something a little bit different. We're talking to my friend, Dr. David Garner, who is Vice President for Advancement and Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. And we're going to talk about the difference that a, a deep sense of the authorities of the scripture, the difference that makes in how we decide what to teach, how we prepare to teach, and then what actually happens when we are teaching and interacting with people. So David, thank you so much for being willing to give your time to me. Delighted to be here. Thanks so much. I'm here on the campus of Westminster Theological Seminary where you serve and teach. It's a beautiful fall day and I apologize to listeners in advance for my uh, scratchy voice due to allergies, but I've been very much looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I first met you, Dave, I think in 2010 when you came to Nashville Mm -hmm, and you taught on Westminster's uh, full confidence tour where it was really a whole weekend about the authority of the scriptures and all of those Mm -hmm. lectures are online. I'll be linking to them with this podcast. Um, But besides being uh, having your head in the thick of academia, Mm -hmm. uh, you were on the mission field in Mm -hmm. Bulgaria for a long time. What were you doing there? Well, I was actually doing theological education there, uh, working both with current church leaders all over Eastern Europe and Central Asia, uh, but also those who were in the throes of preparing for gospel ministry. So I was engaged in instructing, teaching those uh, for gospel ministry in, in those important parts of the world. So, And then recently, your pastor had to unexpectedly leave the yes. pastorate, and your church here in Pennsylvania called you up to be pastor. Well, I had actually been serving with that minister at Proclamation Presbyterian Church before he left and ended up serving on the church staff there as pastor of teaching for three years. And... Um, Westminster asked me if I would consider stepping into an administrative role here, and as of July 1st this year, I've 
added that administrative duty and um, am no longer currently serving as pastor at Proclamation, though I'm continuing in my teaching here at Westminster mm-hmm. and I'm delighted in doing that. So, Well, one of the things I have really appreciated about you, Dave, when I've sat in on where you have taught is your clarity. Hmm. Uh, A lot of people know a lot of stuff, (laughs) but for uh, the average person listening, they have a hard time grasping and Mm -hmm. taking hold of it. Is clarity for a teacher, is that just something you have or you don't? Or, I mean, do you think that's just like a natural gift Mm -hmm. you have? Is that something you think you've developed? What do you think is the secret to being a clear teacher? That's a really great question. It's sort of a nature-nurture question, I suppose, as it relates to particular gifting. Though I think it's a little more than that. I I think sometimes, uh, well, let me frame it this way. I guess I'd put it first. I do think that some people, just by nature, have an ability to communicate more clearly than others. I just think that's a God-given gift, which can be refined, can be improved. I do believe that. But I also think at times we can become lazy with thinking about the presentation of our material and think that just because we've studied and understand the concepts that we're actually ready to deliver them in a way that is effective and clear for the hearer and even perceived as relevant to them. And I think we need to give a a significant component of our labor to thinking about how we're going to communicate something, not just what we're going to communicate. So what does that look like for you when you're preparing to teach, especially to not your not your seminary class, right. but when like we've taught at your church? What does mm-hmm. that look like for you to get to the clarity point? Well, in in some ways, there's the, the simple feature of not employing the theological shorthand, if you will, not throwing you're theological not trying to terms impress them with words. around. Well, yeah, and I think sometimes we avoid theological terms because because we fear that people might think we're throwing them around, but I actually, there's great value in learning the terms because they're there for a reason. So it's not so much that you don't use them, but that if you use them, that you take the time to explain what they mean. That's part of the clarity question as well. So using theological terms is necessary at times, but I think it's how we do that. So to your question, I suppose, of you know, how you go about communicating to folks that may not be in seminary or may never be in seminary but desperately need to understand God's word. I think, you know, making sure that what you are communicating is clear in your own mind first. Um, I had a professor years ago that said that a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew, I've never forgotten that because if you're not crystal clear in your own thinking, wherever there's some degree of ambiguity in your own thought, it will be a cloud of confusion for your hearer. So I think it's really important that you are able to communicate your thoughts in a way that is terse, but is also very uh, coherent in terms of how one thought connects to the other. So those transitions are really, really important, that you don't just assume that somebody tracks with you from point one to point two to point three, that you actually help them move from one point to the other So on a really practical level, when you're Mm -hmm. preparing to teach, maybe you've got your one, two, three points. Have you, before you stepped up to teach, thought through how you're going to transition? I used to have to do that quite, in fact, when I would, before I first started preaching years and years ago, I would actually write those transitions out word for word. 
I have found the longer that I've been teaching and preaching, I have that skill has become more a part of the fabric of, of who I am and what I do. I'm not saying that people aren't sometimes still confused, but I do think that it's become more of part of who I am in, in, in my delivery. And so I think, but the, all that's to say, it still requires thought. You don't just neglect it. It's just a skill that I think needs to be honed. So yes, for those who are preparing lessons, I would strongly encourage them to take their outlines, work through those outlines, but also think right out the transitions from point to point. I think it's very, very important for your hearers so they're actually understanding what you're articulating. You know, I think a couple things that help me with clarity at times, I wonder if you can relate to these. Um, you know, sometimes I'll read something. I think I kind of get it, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm like you said, maybe still in a mist. Mm-hmm. And one big test for me in terms of am I still in a mist is can I go on a walk with my friends in the park without any notes in front of me? Yes. And explain it in my own words to somebody else. Totally agree. This is actually something I do with preaching as well, is if by Saturday night I'm not able to in an instant articulate my main points, I'm not ready. And so you need to, it's not as though I won't use my notes when I preach or teach, but they need to be so a part of my thinking that it's carefully thought out that I can, without looking at one note, get the main points and the transitions between those points. So it's the same thing that you're saying, being able to express that. And this is another thing. You know, when we lived in Bulgaria, we had to learn a, a new language. I was brilliant in Bulgarian in my mind, and then I opened my mouth. You know, because what, what, what you think you've got it, and then you actually try to express it, and you realize that really didn't come out very well. So one of the disciplines that I encourage, especially new teachers and new preachers, is to, to speak these things out loud. Hear yourself say them. Even record. That's awkward. It is awkward, especially at the beginning. Um, I don't think my brother-in-law would mind me telling you this. He has been in pastoral ministry for 30 years. Every Saturday night before the service on Sunday, he goes in the, into the auditorium and preaches his sermon to an Still emperor. 30 years later? Still does. And the reason is he is seeking clarity. You can see in that example, this is the way in which he is able to ensure that what comes out of his mouth is clear. He's heard himself say it. And I just think that's a, it's, it is a little weird, especially when you first start doing this. But I actually, I don't do that like I used to, but I did very early on take the time to actually speak my messages, my lessons out loud in my office. And it's, that, that's helpful. It really is. It's a practical tip of, of, of great aid, I think. I'm sure you're right that saying it out loud yes. in some ways other than just having it on the paper in front of you helps you to catch some of those things before you even Absolutely. get there. Absolutely, right, yep. Well, I want to talk to you because uh, specifically about the authority of the Scripture. It's something mm-hmm. you have written about, you put together a book called Did God Really Say? Mm-hmm. Affirming the Truthfulness and Trustworthiness of Scripture. And right. uh, just walk us through, I mean, that can sound like a term nobody's going to disagree with. Right. I mean, who's going to say, I don't think the Scriptures have any authority. I don't think anybody listening to this podcast, you know, would have those kind of thoughts. So perhaps we need to understand a little bit better what you mean and what it looks like in our teaching when we don't really 
have a sense of the authority of the scripture. So let's do it this way. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about what a deep sense of the authority scripture, what difference does it make in our preparation, both in choosing what we're going to teach, preparing to teach, and then talk to us some more about that active role when we are in the midst of people that we're teaching. And I mean, I suppose, you know, we can sound brilliant and have all of our arguments together. And then that hand goes up and they ask a question that really intimidates us or throws us off kilter. So, but let's start first. Why don't you define the term of authority of scripture when mm-hmm. you talk about it and, and what does it look like when we're teaching without a sense of it? You know, one of the features of the Bible from the start to finish is the repeated assertion, both explicitly and implicitly, that this is God speaking. These are his words. And, you know, it's it's places like 2 Timothy 3, where Paul, in his very last letter to Timothy, is exhorting Timothy to carry the baton to the next generation of of the church and where does he remind Timothy that his authority lies? It is in God's word outbreathed. It's the inscripturated word. Timothy, that is your place of of authority. It is your place of on which you stand when you open your mouth. Let it be God's word. Well, that is that is not just merely a, a mental affirmation. It is a, it changes the orientation of your heart when you read Paul in the opening letter of uh, opening chapter of Ephesians. Paul is overwhelmed by God's grace and what God has done in Christ, and so he does. I like to talk about it that he does theology on his knees, and he he is. He's in that, that attitude shapes the way in which Paul speaks and preaches. He realizes that what he has articulated is a gift of God. And he doesn't deserve any of it. It is the fact that God has spoken itself is, is such a rich privilege that why would God speak to us? And so what we have in God's word that Paul is self-consciously articulating is something that drives him to worship and to awe and to an appreciation. Well, that shapes our attitude when we're studying the Bible. So when I open the pages of scripture and I'm just treating it like the newspaper or treating it like Time magazine or the CNN website or whatever it is that I'm looking at, If I'm treating the Bible that way, I'm not actually entering it with the posture and attitude that I ought. Whether I'm teaching or not, I have the responsibility as a hearer of God's word to have an attitude of teachability, of humility. Well, I think that shapes for teachers the way in which we ought to think about the study of God's word and the communication of it. Because I am dealing with holy matters. I'm dealing with the treasure of what God has given and when I speak, it's not, it's not about me impressing others. It's not about me um, developing a sophisticated argument that is going to be intellectually satisfying. The goal is not to impress. The goal is faithfulness. It is a faithfulness that is, it is what I'm teaching, actually what God has said. And I think that attitude changes everything about when I open my mouth to teach the Bible. And so I, the authority of the Bible then really 
has direct bearing on the teacher's function because I am not in the, the crass sense of the word to be creative. My, my goal is to be receptive to what God has said and then to restate it to my hearers in a way that is helpful and useful and faithful to what God has said. So I just think it changes the attitude. It t- changes the, the goal of what I'm doing when I'm teaching. Uh, it's not for others to think, wow, what a great teacher. It's not for others to think, hey, I hadn't thought about that before. It may be they hadn't thought about it before, but let it not be because you have been unfaithful or articulated something that just sounds so um, enticing philosophically or emotionally or, or whatever else. But let it be that these that the hearers are directed to God and his word and that he has spoken, not to to me. You think there's any teacher that doesn't battle with the desire when you're done for people to say that was brilliant? Right. It is one of the great temptations for every preacher and every teacher. And anyone who tells you otherwise is not telling the truth. It, I mean, how many of us do not want to be stroked, right? And when you are in a position of teaching or preaching, you are exercising a, a form of authority. And you want to get the strokes to say, wow, Nancy is a fabulous teacher. Wow, Dave is a great, clear communicator. That We want to hear those things. And I'm not telling the people of God not to encourage their teachers and preachers. I think we ought to encourage. But it is a, the heart is a slippery place. And I think each of us, and this relates to the authority of Scripture question as well, that when we teach, our prayers ought to be, when we, before we begin, even studying itself, before we open our mouth as teachers, that we would say, God, free me, spare me from falling into the temptation of making this about me. And I think that's, that's going to be a prayer. I'm sure you pray it. I think it's a prayer that every teacher ought to pray before they teach anything from God's Word. So if our goal is faithfulness, mm-hmm. uh, we've, we've got a book or a text that we're, we're opening up, we're beginning to yep. prepare. What are the, some of the things that we need to keep in mind then as we work through the text, as we try to figure out our outline, mm-hmm. our, our big main points, our big main central point. Sure. How, how does this guiding star of faithfulness, how does that work itself out in our Great preparation? Great question. I love to talk about this. This is one of the things I encourage any teacher to do. Let's say you're teaching the book of First John, and your responsibility is to teach First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is your lesson for this particular Sunday. Well, if we actually believe that God's word is just that, it is God's word that the Apostle John is the instrument through whom these words of God have come, what that means is that there's an intentionality to that book, there's a purpose to that book, that book has a um, a coherence to it, it is consistent with everything else that God has said, it might provide additional revelation from other books of the Bible, but it is not inconsistent with what has been said elsewhere in the Bible, because the Holy Spirit is a single voice, and he does not contradict himself. But he also has purpose in a given book, so how does that shape the way in which I deal with First John chapter 2? Well, here's one of the ways. I encourage every teacher that you should have read through the entire book 
And it's easier to do with 1 John than it is to do with Isaiah. But I think we should have a grasp of the book as a whole before we get into its parts. Because what John says in 1 John 2 is tied to what he said earlier in the first chapter and what he says later in chapter 5. Um, and so in order to actually articulate faithfully those two verses, I need to understand the whole. And you see, that decision is a means by which I'm saying God has spoken and he has given it in this particular epistle, this particular letter. It has meaning and has purpose. These verses are not just random. They are not... They're not hanging they're out not there hang, alone. They're not hanging on their own. Because exactly. it sounds to me like the opposite of what you're talking about mm-hmm. would be that I look at those two verses and I do maybe a couple of things. That I look at the verses and I get an idea based on maybe a few words or a sentence about mm-hmm. what that could be about. And I, I, you know, I dive into that when that really is perhaps then unrelated to the whole. Right. And I, I think about what my listeners are going to think is interesting, funny, yeah. uh, felt need. And I think about, and I look and I say, well, what does that mean to me? Yeah. Rather than what did the uh, divine and human author intend for the original exactly. audience to understand so they can draw that meaning. So from, Exactly. Right? So part of what your responsibility as a teacher to do in order to honor God's word as God's word is to understand it in its context. So we're really actually talking about matters of interpreting and understanding the Bible here. But it is not only that, but it is to say, am I receiving the text or am I putting into it what I feel or perceive when I read it? And, I mean, there are lots of ways to protect and preserve the integrity of my teaching, but one of them is to get a grasp of the whole. And commentaries can be helpful in this regard, too, because good commentaries will provide an opening, introductory uh, material that will help you understand the book as a whole, the audience, the, the purpose, the intention. Sometimes the books articulate very directly later on in the book. I think of the book of Hebrews, 13 chapters long. You don't get to the nature of what Hebrews is until chapter 13, where it tells you this is a brief word of exhortation. And then the author of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 1 says, the main point of Hebrews is this. And so it's not, in, you don't understand Hebrews 1 without understanding Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 13. And so you need to have a grasp of the whole in order to speak faithfully about the parts. But we all have personalities. Yes. And the people who are listening to us, they connect with us via personality in mm-hmm. a sense. And how, how do I know as a teacher when I am putting too much of myself and mm-hmm. uh, too much of my own both personality needs, uh, thoughts, rather than focusing on that uh, biblical writer's intention. Are are there some checkpoints or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, boy, that's a good question. Vulnerable for all of us to read into Scripture rather than to receive from Scripture. I think that's absolutely true. You touched on this briefly with a comment you made earlier about what does the Bible, what does this passage mean to me? That's a great question. Is it? It's a good question, but it's not the first question. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's, a, it's, it's the application question. When I say what does it mean to me, I don't mean that it has a particular meaning to me that it doesn't to you. It may apply to me differently. And if that's what we mean, what does the Bible mean to me, then that's, that's a fine question. Maybe a better way to say that question is what are the implications for me? Fair enough. It, it probably is better stated. But where, where I do find most people going, and this is so common in Bible studies, where we'll sit in a room, we'll open a passage, and uh, we'll say, okay, folks, what does this passage mean? Well, what we're really saying is, how do you feel when you read this? Um, What are things that come to your mind when you read this? I mean, you're exactly right, especially if you're in a small group setting that's very Mm discussion-oriented. Immediately, everybody starts throwing out their opinions about it. And you know what else they do is they pull out their iPhones and they Google a question about a particular word or verse, and then they become the expert in the room because they're reading from their iPhone. (laughs) And um, and, and all of that is really abusive of Scripture. I think it is because we actually, if we are not careful to read Scripture for what it is, we walk away from that time confident in ourselves rather than confident in what God has said. So this is one of the reasons why even in the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it speaks uh, about studying of the Bible, it talks about the effort, the work that is required. Uh, This is not something that just happens by feel or it's labor intensive teachers i I want to remind everyone who's listening this this requires work Uh, there are means by which we have to engage the study of scripture it late there is no place for laziness in 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 teaching Uh, whether it's facilitating a small group or whether it's lecturing before thousands uh both of those require diligent prayerful uh, work to make sure that we're receiving God's word in its context. So the application then of that, as you put it, what are the implications? I actually prefer that term over application myself. Um, what are what does this text mean? Then we once we understand what it means, then we can move to the implication application questions. The temptation for most of us is to dive into those questions before we're actually ready to do so. As the leader, Mm -hmm. we're going to have to assume a role of guiding that discussion that keeps taking people back to the original intent before we allow them to jump off on opinion, yes. personal experience, what and does it mean to me, right? discipline as a leader. There, are, I mean, you've probably experienced this as and well. Grace. Yes, both. And patience, learning to listen to people's questions and finding certain nuggets that you can affirm and making sure that you do that. Is so that what that you would do in I do. Situation? I absolutely try to do that every single time. When somebody asks a question, I will try to affirm the nuggets of points in which they have faithfully expressed something that the scriptures teach. But then gently to say, but let's let's see what the text says in its context about the, the, the way in which you frame this. Do those two things line up or do they not? It seems to me as you say that, that the other real need you have as teacher for that mm-hmm. is we know that scripture interprets scripture. Yes. So... You have to, before you get into that setting, you have to anticipate what some of those comments are going to be. Sure. And 
it just presses all of us as teachers to know the whole of the scriptures Mm -hmm. so that when we're in that situation and a particular passage looks to mean something and just by itself, that particular line could look to mean something that we are equipped to bring to bear the other scriptures that help us interpret that correctly. Yes. And I would also add to not fail arrogantly as, as has often been the case of thinking that nobody has, has ever asked this question before and no one has ever struggled with this text. No one. That's just, it's, it's preposterous that we think that we in the 21st century are the first people to have ever struggled with a particular verse to realize that the church has wrestled and provided terrific answers to some of these questions that we ought to be aware of. Now, one of the things I would say, if I'm, if I'm hearing what you're saying, there might be a temptation for some out there to say, well, if I haven't mastered the whole Bible, then I can't teach. Well, none of us has mastered the whole Bible. There would be there, no teachers. There would be no teachers, except, except the Lord Jesus himself, right? And, and so, and yet, I here's one of the just the practical tips that I would encourage somebody as a teacher. There's a temptation as a teacher to think that you have to be able to answer every question that comes up. One of the great answers, I even tell our Ph.D. students here in their exams, if you don't know the answer to the question, say, I am do not know, That's but I am, it is hard, but it is also essential for the integrity of a teacher to not create an answer on the fly that you go back and say, whoa, that was not right at all because you're accountable for the things that come out of your mouth. You and I as teachers, we're responsible for those things. And so we need to only go so far as our understanding and study has taken us and no further. And probably when you're in your 20s teaching versus when you're in your 60s teaching, there's less of those I don't knows. That would be the goal, right? But there always are going to be questions that come up that you don't have full answers. I suppose that models for people as well, being a lifelong learner of the scripture. I think so. I mean, I, I think I used to think once I really understood the scriptures that that somehow equaled spiritual maturity. Maturity, yeah. which we know is not the case, right. and that there was some level of attainment. But you know, the deeper I go in the scriptures, the more I realize I don't grasp. Uh, isn't that true? Because the scriptures are so, they're so rich. They're, yes. There's so many layers. There's uh, oh, the depths right. of the yeah. knowledge and the wisdom of God yes. that we could spend our entire lives, and there's still going to be. Questions we don't have. But you know what, Nancy, what you've just done there is underscored the point that I was making earlier. That posture of wow is critical for a teacher. It is. And so it is not just getting to the what, but appreciating the wow of Scripture that I think is so important for us as teachers to. To think, A, God has spoken. And we see this from the very beginning. God didn't start speaking to his people after the fall. He was speaking with them before the fall. There, that God's word has been essential from even before sin entered the world. That was part of the way in which God is committed to relate to his people. Um, word is central. The battle for the mind is, is critical. This is, you know, we, we're such an emotive people and an emotive generation. Um, and and we, we have got to appreciate that our emotions need to be shaped by the, the word of God. So when I talk about the wow, I'm saying the wow, not just in an emotive sense, 
but in, an, in a sense of awe that God has reached down and has spoken to us in words that we can understand and that we have that posture of just being overwhelmed that not only what God has spoken, but that he has spoken to us. And that what you just described about the wisdom and knowledge of God being literally impenetrable for us as students of the word is actually a gift for us as teachers to say, let me tell you, let me show you what God has said here. There's an excitement that should be there, but it's grounded not just in an emotion that's created. It's not a, it's not a pretentious sort of thing or a, a, a made-up sort of thing, but it is actually grounded in the awe of being the recipients of God's word. I think one challenge we have at times as teachers is, you know, we're we're in touch with the people who are in our groups. And I'm thinking especially about women's ministry leaders. Mm. You know, every fall, every spring, they're putting up a plan for what's going to be studied. I want the, the Bible study that I'm offering to reflect a sense of the authority of Scripture. But I realize, you know what, if I say we're going to do a study of the minor prophets, mm-hmm. Maybe nobody's going to come. Yeah, eyes glaze over, right? They're like, you know, no, I, you know, I need to know how to, you know, parent my toddler yeah. or my teen. Um, I, I need to know how to better have better relationships, evangelize more, and, and none of those things are bad, right? Sure. But just, just talk to yeah, yeah, me yeah. about that struggle. Let, let me I know, illustrate this this way. I, okay. you know, when think about the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, the very first one. He opens that book by really, frankly, the early chapters are an expression of all the problems in the church in Corinth. So you've got divisions, you've got factions, you have moral problems in the church that are absolutely extraordinary. You have legal problems in the church that are going on. You have theological abuses going on in the church, misunderstanding, misappropriation of spiritual gifts. All of these problems beg for the quote-unquote practical, this is how you fix these things, this is what you need to do. Well, by the time you get to chapter 15, Paul has exhausted addressing those problems and what is, or raising those problems, and what does he do? He gives us the richest treatment in the entire Bible about the theological meaning and significance of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. For Paul, the way in which you get at these practical concerns is not by a bullet point list of check this box, check this box, check this box, and you're on your way. No, it is wrapping your mind around the meaning and significance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and my union with him. As Paul addressed the church in Corinth, the solution to the practical, moral, legal, interpersonal problems was theological. And that is, I think that reminder, that book just profoundly reminds us that the way in which we're going to address these things is not simplistically it's not just in terms of a, of a list of do's or don'ts, but it is in absorbing the truth and truthfulness of God's word and recognizing the splendor of Christ Jesus as the resurrected Son of God, who is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, life-giving spirit. 
And the life-giving spirit for our practical needs is going to be found in grasping in, grasping and reveling in the glory and splendor of the resurrected Christ. So that's not a shortcut, but that is critical for us. In fact, I would argue, and I think you probably would see this as well, where there are messages, lessons that provide these shortcut how-tos, people walk away with a checklist, but they walk away with an empty soul as well. And so they're starving, and they're trying to feed themselves with, with Oreos and think they wonder why they are spiritually anemic. And I think that the answer to that is that we have come to a false conclusion that what is practical is not theological. The Bible will have none of it. I remember going along with that. I remember, you know, many years ago listening through Ed Clowney and Tim mm-hmm. Keller's teaching. That thing you can find on iTunes. Yeah. I forget what it's called. Uh-huh. Postmodern preaching. Yeah, I know like the that. series you're talking yeah. about. I don't recall the title of it either. Yes. But I remember one of the most profound things I learned from that that I have carried away from it is Tim Keller's emphasis on having an aim of adoration of mm-hmm. Christ. Mm-hmm. He's talking about in preaching, but I think it's the same in teaching. Mm-hmm. Yep. Maybe that doesn't sound very practical. And I think it's, that's what you're getting it at is. too. That sense of, yeah, when you do grasp the uh, life, death, resurrection, ascension, being united to Christ, if There's that then doesn't richer and more practical for our lives. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And and if that doesn't move us right. toward adoration that this yeah. is the plan and purpose of God. And if in our teaching we somehow settle for them having taken really good notes on our outline and filling in the blanks. Um, and telling us we were great and interesting, but somehow not aimed toward getting to the place. Where and I don't mean a merely emotional response right. because I think it's a that's a big thoughts about God, deeper understanding about God that then changes how we feel mm-hmm. and how we respond to mm-hmm. Him. Yeah, maybe a way of saying this would be: if our goal is emotion, we will be disappointed. If our goal is the adoration of God through His written Word, our emotions will follow, and they will be rich. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. Paul does say to Timothy about the, making the goal of his instruction love. You know, and one of the things, I was just reading this yesterday. Um, Paul, in 2 Timothy 3, tells Timothy to follow the aim of his life. In other words, when he's exhorting Timothy with his carrying on the baton into the next generation of the church, he urges Timothy about his teaching, but also about the aim of his life to be the shared aim that the Apostle Paul had. There's, a, there's something to be said for that goal of, of following and pursuing God with honor and, and reverence and delighting in him and, and rejecting false satisfactions. Where earlier in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, Paul will talk, and, will talk about the, 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 the empty godliness of, of those that only have it in form but not in substance. That's tied to our goals being actually shaped by Scripture as well. And I think Paul urges Timothy that very thing as he's handing the baton to the next generation. Your aim needs to be a Christ-honoring aim. Let's move now before we go, Dave, to talk about the actual practice. We're in front of a group of people or we're leading in a circle uh, or maybe it's even just across the table at Starbucks. 
And for most of us as teachers these days, perhaps 25, 30 years ago, the primary voice that those we were teaching, they heard the pastor and maybe us as the teacher. Sure. It's not at all that way today. Right. Um, you know, everybody who is online is a communicator. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the people we're teaching, they're hearing lots of divergent voices, even from within, you know, the Christian community, broader Christian community, mm-hmm. lots of voices. And some of those voices are suggesting that, you know, maybe the way people have read the Bible all of these years was naive, mm-hmm. incomplete, mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, if you're really with it today, then you're, 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 you're not forcing the Bible to be something it wasn't intended to be. Mm-hmm. And so these are the people that are around our circle and, and in our class. And we know that they're going to have comments mm-hmm. and, and we are a little bit intimidated to think about how we're going to respond to them. So sure. just talk to us about how we can appropriately present the authority of the scriptures and respond to some of those kind of comments and, or even recognize that that's where some of those comments are coming from. Sure. Help us. Wow. Great series of questions. Let's see. If Sorry. Can... I gave you so many. In yeah, one. that's okay. Let me, let me try to, to begin this way. And that is not everyone who raises those questions does so out of malice. In fact, most of them don't. Most of them are saying, I'm struggling here. I want to understand. I want to understand, but I am being told all the voices in my ears are doing two things. One, they're, they're disagreeing. The voices don't agree. And two, I'm actually being told that if I come down hard on one particular position, that I am arrogant, I become intolerant, and all of those sorts of very powerful rhetorical sorts of notions that our culture is dominated with. And so in some measure, I want to land somewhere. On the other hand, I fear that if I do land somewhere that I'm now going to be marginalized or ostracized and viewed as a bigot. And so I think that temptation is in people's minds and hearts. I don't want to be viewed as a bigot. I want my next door neighbor to like me. Uh, I want my fellow employee not to think that I'm a narrow-minded, Bible-thumping Christian, right? And so um, not all of those motives are bad. Uh, some of them may well be, but what is underlying all of that, and this gets back to our earlier comment about the authority and clarity of Scripture, is that these voices that are telling us that we can't be confident in what God has said are actually saying, be confident in my saying to you that you can't be confident. So that the only thing that I can be confident in is that I can't be confident. Well, on what authority do you say that, right? What is the basis for that claim? So I'm actually being told subconsciously to believe the authority that there is no authority. And that that is a subtle and dangerous lie that I think we need to help people to realize that's not the way the world is. It's not the way that it works. What is also interesting, I think, in this is the, you know, it's, it, it is, I laugh a little only in, in the sense that it's sad to me, but the rhetoric that we're hearing about these very ideas of the authority of the Bible not really being reliable 
This is a restatement of all that was coming out of liberal theology in the 19th and 20th, early 20th centuries. There is nothing new about this. The only thing that's new about it now is it's more common in our evangelical churches, and the voices are being heard in places that they weren't heard before. But what we don't realize is that these questions have been roundly addressed, effectively addressed, and to think that we're the first people to ask these questions and to struggle with these things, again, I don't want to impugn motives, but it's pretty arrogant to think that nobody else has ever asked this before. We're the most sophisticated generation that there ever was, and so there's something unique or superior about us. Well, that's flatly untrue. If you just read anything in history of the, the development of theology in the church, you'll realize that these questions have surfaced a long time ago, and they've been answered very, very effectively. The other side of this as a teacher is, I, you know, we're not going to be able to solve that moral, mental dilemma in people's minds and our own strength. You know, I remember Charles Spurgeon famously saying that the Bible is a lion, let it out of its cage, and it will defend itself. So part of the answer to that is, guess what? I don't have to satisfy your questions. God alone can satisfy your questions. Let me show you what God has said. And his spirit will take those things, and as he works on you, will bring the needed repentance, bring the needed mind change. But if I, as a teacher, don't really believe the Bible can do that, that will implicitly come through. And if I just affirm the ambiguity with my own ambiguity about the authority of God's word, I am actually leading that person further astray. So my responsibility is to continue to point them back to Scripture, and God's authentic word will do its authentic work in our hearts. What a relief. It is freeing. Isn't it wonderful? And it really does... Um rely on do i really believe that the word of god will do the work of god yes that the spirit will use his word to right. do his work and that it isn't up to me as a teacher to have all the arguments or right. all of the answers but to faithfully unleash exactly unleash the lion that's right exactly that is so very helpful yeah this is, whole conversation has been so very helpful. Great. David. Well, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for having me. It's been a delight to do this with you. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts, and in regard to our topic of the authority of Scripture today and its impact on our teaching, be sure to take a look at the book, Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung, perhaps Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert, and also Jen Wilkins' Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.